The Bible of Psychiatry on this edition of Truth and Love. I'm Dale Johnson, and you're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, where we seek to provide biblical solutions for the problems that people face. This week, I am joined by Dr. Sam Stevens. He is our Director of Training Center Certification, and we are in the month of May, Dr. Stevens, and the month of May is known around the world as Mental Health Month or Mental Health Awareness Month. And what we want to do is to take special interest in talking about the issues of mental health. What we're going to try to do is there's so much information for us to talk about. One of my visions with ACBC is that we reclaim categorically the problems that people face from a biblical perspective. And what I want to do over the series of the next uh, several podcasts throughout the month of May as we talk about mental health, and uh, that contrasted with biblical counseling, I want us to, to bring clarity, if we can, on the importance of the, the secular worldview and how they categorize human problems, and then how we would think through this in a thoroughly biblical way. Now, the title of today's podcast, The Bible of Psychiatry, is used even in the secular field to refer to uh, a, a manual, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of mental disorders. And I think it's important that we sort of begin there. To many people, this this manual, this Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, is viewed as a, a scientific reference guide uh, for psychiatry. It, it is really the diagnostic material that psychologists and psychiatrists sort of operate around. And, and what I want us to do is, is to address it we're going to begin today uh, very small, if we can. Again, there's so much information, but I want us to begin just to look at and inform you about the DSM, what it is and how we are to approach it, how we're to think about it in, in a biblical way. Um, and for us to, I want to give you some knowledge that, that you may not know of relative to the history of how these things were created and so on. I think these things are important, and here's why. I told Dr. Stevens earlier that that my motivation here is I talk to so many pastors who, as they hear us talk about biblical counseling and biblical discipleship, they're convinced that what we're saying is true and right, but it's almost as if that world of psychiatry in in some sort of um, beyond a threshold, there's an extreme expression of all the things that the DSM uh, says are true, and they they see, man, I, I can do the things you're telling me to do, but I don't know if I can do those things. And it's almost as if they they categorically push the DSM and all the things the DSM talks about into sort of a separate category. And what we want to do today is is sort of uh, help us to understand uh, so that we don't fear, and it be, it doesn't become a hindrance to true legitimate ministry of the Scripture. So, Dr. Stevens, where I want to begin is us just explaining for our listeners, in order to help them, is what in the world is the DSM? Yeah. Well, as many people in the field talk about it, is the as you mentioned already, the authoritative medical guide to mental illnesses, uh, mental suffering. And I think it's important to note that many of us may ask the question, well, why does this matter for me? I'm, I'm in ministry. I'm in the church. Um, Alan Francis, who served as the task force chair for the DSM-4, which was the a previous iteration of the current DSM-5. There are several editions. 
Um, he speaks about not just its direct impact on uh, the field of psychiatry. He talks about actually the broader societal impact that the DSM has had since actually um, it's the third edition, which was um, published in uh, 1980. I want to read this brief quote. I think it's really uh, eye-opening here. Uh, he says this uh, in his book, Saving Normal. The DSM has a lot of societal influence because of the crucial boundary it sets between what is normal and what is abnormal. The DSM determines all sorts of important things that have enormous impact on people's lives, like who is considered well and who is sick, what treatment is offered and who pays for it, who gets disability benefits, who is eligible for mental health, school, vocational, and other services. Who gets to be hired for a job who can adopt a child or pilot a plane or qualifies for life insurance? I don't think many of us understand the broad impact that the DSM actually has on everyday life. And pastors, I think, need to understand that um, it's not just for maybe a church member who is seeing a psychiatrist or maybe has even been given um, a psychiatric diagnosis that actually impacts broader society at large. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it now becomes the language that we use to talk about problems that we have and as if it's some sort of scientifically defined threshold that that describes what, what we would say is, is abnormal, right? And, and that's a part of what Dr. Francis is saying. Uh, and, and again, there are several books that have been written uh, in reaction to the DSM-5 coming out. We're, we're going to talk about those things in subsequent podcasts. But part of what we want to do today is, is just to help you understand the, the fullness. This is the, the DSM is, is a book that's been put together over time trying to delineate diagnostic criteria. Now, it's important that we understand when we say diagnostic criteria w- what we're actually meaning. So uh, the, the point is and you can read this directly from the introduction of the DSM, is what they claim to do is to discuss, they don't even use the term mental illness, they use the term mental disorders. And what they're trying to do is put together what they call a criteria set or a collection of symptoms known as syndromes. That's what a, a syndrome is. It's, it's just simply a collection of, of symptoms that a person is experiencing. Now, interestingly enough, when you look at the DSM in its introduction, it actually claims itself, contrary to what most of us believe to be true about psychiatric diagnoses, the common culture believes very clearly that psychiatric diagnoses are a a disease. We believe in it in terms of a disease model. We use that language consistently. The interesting thing about this, and we often connect this to some sort of issue of the brain or, or whatever, the interesting thing that's happened, and this has been the constant battle back and forth uh, in the discussion of criteria sets and how the DSM is built, and they, they note this in the introduction, and this is what they say, non-clinical decision makers should also be cautioned that a diagnosis does not carry any necessary implications regarding the etiology or causes of the individual's mental disorder or the individual's degree of control over behaviors that may be associated with the disorder. So, so what are they claiming? What, what they're claiming is that the idea of the DSM is not demarcating cause. In fact, in the DSM, there's not one biomarker, a biological marker that explains causality for uh, the criteria that, that's given. And so it's interesting that if we pay attention to the science, and often biblical counseling 
is 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 railed uh, against relative to we we don't accept science we don't believe in science that sort of thing uh, nothing could be further from the truth. What we're wanting to try and do is, okay, let's 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 look at the the science, what the science actually says, and there's a flood of information that's consistently coming out that demonstrates how philosophically based the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders is. They're looking at uh, criteria. Yes, that that someone has a symptom that uh, of of an emotion that's an unwanted emotion, but their philosophy is guiding them in how they. They categorize those things. And for us as Christians, it would be radically, radically different. Our philosophical approach, our Christian worldview, dictates how we would see those types of emotional dispositions and so on. So that's a little bit about what the DSM is. It was created. uh, The the first official one was in the 1950s. It progressed. The second one was added in 1968. The third one, as you mentioned before, uh, was in 1980. Uh, the fourth one was uh, where Alan Francis was the, the DSM-4 task force chairman. That was an addition in the, in the 90s. And then now we have the, the latest one in, in 2013, the DSM-5. And so over time, what's happened is, is this is not uh, primarily done by s- specific scientific inquiry and research. This is done by a collection of people who are appointed by the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, to decide what goes into the DSM, what goes in categorically to the DSM. And and we could go into much detail about uh, the conflation of those ideas, the influences of those ideas by pharmaceutical industry, and so on and so forth. This is something that, that was written about the DSM and how it is built together. This is why in psychiatry, unlike the rest of medicine, members of a consensus group, meaning a task force of, of selected, chosen by the APA, men and women, get together. A task force appointed by officers of the APA make and unmake diagnoses. The membership sometimes voting on whether a controversial diagnosis is or is not a disease, meaning that they sit around a table, literally, and they discuss uh, these ideas of clinical utility and what they believe should go into the DSM and what should be voted out of the DSM. Yeah, so basically it's it's diagnoses by committee. And and I don't think that a lot of people, I know that when I first engaged with the the DSM. My assumption was, like any other medical uh, reference book or document, that there would be a lot of what you would think of as the hard sciences, right? Things that come from the physical sciences, uh, data that would back that up. But what I've come to find is, and then of course the readings from those within the field, which I think we need to mention, it's not just it's not believers that are writing about this predominantly. There are many people that are practicing psychiatrists that say, listen, our entire field has been built on this faulty assumption. We're, we're promoting ourselves as a hard science, as a medical science. In fact, you see that even, I think, in the 70s, many people th- think of psychiatry as going through a, a time of crisis. Are we going to continue in this way where we're, uh, you know, we're, we're not really considered a medical science? We're definitely not a hard science here. We've not nailed down a a very uh, strict nosology as we talk about uh, categories of, of illnesses in a very scientific orderly way, and they were trying to find themselves. I think it's interesting to note, uh, Dr. Johnson, what you mentioned. In the DSM-1, which was published in the 1950s, as you mentioned, um, the focus, actually the language used in the DSM-1, uh, focused on reactions, 
reactions that people had to circumstances in their lives. With the DSM-2 and then definitely with the DSM-3, you see this further and further moving away from really normal responses to life, things that we would see in everyday life into uh, medical language, scientific language. And I think for our listeners, the, the caution would be when you read this type of uh, literature, be you need to be very discerning because it on the surface, it seems very objective. It seems very authoritative and scientific, but even these very influential writers in the field point out there's there's a lot of subjectivity behind that. Gary Greenberg mentions this in his book, uh, The Book of Woe, The DSM and the Unmaking of Psychiatry. When, at, when, when he asked many uh, very influential psychiatrists uh, that worked on the DSM-4, for example, and he asked about the, very di- the various diagnoses and criteria, uh, they, they admitted to him, these are really just fictive placeholders. They're useful constructs. And basically, it's the best that our profession can come up with the knowledge that we have. But unfortunately, the names and the descriptions that psychological sufferings have been given up to this point far exceed the knowledge that they have right now. Well, it's interesting uh, because Alan Francis, who we mentioned earlier, says something very similar. This is what he says. The absence of biological tests is a huge disadvantage for psychiatry. It means that all of our diagnoses are now based on subjective judgments that are inherently fallible and prey to capricious change. It's like having to diagnose pneumonia without having any tests for the viruses or bacteria that cause the various types of lung infection. And what he's admitting is the subjectivity of of how we we come up with these criteria. Now, all that to be said, I I think it helps us to see that maybe the the imagination in our mind of this stronghold of quote-unquote science, I might would argue scientism, uh, that, that has been built uh, here with the DSM that our culture has, has bought into, honestly, lock, stock, and barrel. But, but how do we make sense of this for us? What does this mean for us as a biblical counselor? Why is this important for us in biblical counseling? I think the first answer to that would be, and I want to speak directly to uh, our pastors, those that are actively ministering, don't be intimidated by the language of the world, the philosophy of the world, especially as it relates to this particular topic. Um, I know that dealing with medical language, if you've not been trained medically, um, sometimes you can't even pronounce some of the words. It can be very intimidating. But for me, um, when I began to read, especially a lot of the literature out there, for example, and began to see that this is a philosophical document, that's what this is. It's an attempt to bring on the legitimacy and what many of us in the world and our culture very much thinks of as the authority of science, almost that, if I dare say, science is infallible. Uh, people speak of data that way. It's infallible. We can trust it. Uh, we'll make our decisions based on it. That we can engage with the DSM and not not fear that we're not trained well enough or that it's going to uh, be able to speak to things that the Scripture does not speak to comprehensively and authoritatively, uh, that when, when counselees, when members of your church come to you and maybe they've self-diagnosed, which is pretty common, or they've actually received a diagnosis from a psychiatrist, don't let that be a turnoff switch for you. Don't, don't let that be, oh, I, I can't speak into that because this is science and I'm not trained that way. No, uh, let us encourage you, engage, engage. Yeah, I think that's that's critical because when I travel around the country and I'm, I'm talking in different places, 
and, and I hear from pastors, and, and this is one of the, the biggest hindrances in their mind uh, for toward biblical counseling, is they, they seem some sort of fear as if they're pitting uh, faith against science. And, and what I want them to do is, is I want them to, to read. I want them to read about how people are viewing now that we're, you know, 70 or 80 years into this process of the DSM and, and its structure and how we categorize and diagnose these problems. That these are philosophical constructs that have been put together from, from the perspective of a different and worldly philosophy. And, and these things matter. And even the language that we use in biblical counseling, I think it's so important for us to to bring back some of these ideas and explain them from a biblical perspective. And using the, the DSM and the language of it, you'll hear me sometimes talk about depressive feelings. I also, often don't use the word depression. And, and part of that has to do with uh, my hindrance to jump into those categorical, uh, the, the baggage that comes with those categories of depression, because there's an assumption that's behind all of that, that this is some sort of biological or brain disease that is unfounded, that, that even uh, people in the field are acknowledging that there's no science to back that up. And so I want to release pastors from from feeling like there's a tension between uh, faith and and science. We, we don't have to fear that. And the Bible, this is the Bible's domain. It's talking about these issues in the lives of their people. And it also helps, I think, um, for them to deal, as, as David Pallison wrote very eloquently uh, in the Journal of Biblical Counseling, about how to counsel a psychologized counselee. And it helps us to understand, when, when you understand the DSM, it helps us to understand uh, what that person believes about their identity, what, what they believe to be true about them, uh, about themselves, and, and what they are experiencing. And it, it helps us to then take the truth of Scripture and explain, you know what, this person's experiences are better explained by the Scripture and the scriptural narrative and why the Bible says we struggle with different things uh, over and against what, what the, the world is saying. So, Let's, let's see if we can sum this up. We've talked about a lot of things. You and I knew this was going to be a difficult conversation just in part because we, we are burdened by this to such a degree, um, and, and we want to free pastors in thinking in this way and ministry leaders. Uh, but we also want to be sensitive. We want to be sensitive that our culture is saturated with this language. And, and, and people who buy into the language, um, you know, their heart is they want to help people. And, and I get that. And we want to promote that, that desire to be helpful for people. But what I'm concerned about is what Paul mentions in Colossians 2.8, is that we give in to vain philosophy and empty deception. That now, through years and years of experimentation, we see that these things are not philosophically neutral. They're, they're actually not complementary to the truth revealed in Scripture. They're actually contradictory to the truth revealed in Scripture. So let's sum this up. We're going to be talking about this over over the month of May, and so let's sum this up today if we can. And with all this said, how do we then view the DSM? The DSM is the world's attempt to explain the problems that people face without God, ultimately. And pastors are going to see this. The church is going to see this more and more. This is not going to go away. Uh, if if the pattern holds, the DSM is going to get larger and larger and larger. The the concerns about hyperinflation with diagnosis is going to continue to be a valid concern. And then the pastor, and you'll see this, the church is going to have to make a choice. Are we going to recede? Are we going to allow to give up um, uh, our responsibility in um, addressing 
the, the stuff of life, the lives of our flock? Are we going to give that up and allow the world to not only address the problem and define it, but also bring a solution to bear? Um, you, think, you think of things as, such as temper tantrums or the inability for small children to, to, to focus uh, or overeating or uh, addictions. Th- these things are, are being taken over by the psychiatric landscape, and before long, what's going to be told to pastors and what's really being told now, if you want to be honest functionally, is you can't speak to this. Well, if this is true and this continues, we won't be able to speak to anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because these things are not ethically free. They're not morally free. And what we see is uh, the domain of psychiatry is encroaching further and further uh, into the domain that God has clearly laid out as the responsibility of the church and the responsibility that he speaks to by revealing himself to minister to our hearts uh, and our soul. Uh, One of the things we want to see as we view the DSM is we want to be able to dispel and to tear down some of those ideas that you may have previously had relative to the DSM. We want to give you clarity that what they're doing is the best attempt possible. If God isn't real, the best attempt possible to try and categorize human problems. So uh, I'm not saying that what they're trying to do is not a noble uh, thing. They're just doing it from a very different philosophical disposition. They're trying to do what they can to help people. The problem is, is we've bought into that from a Christian perspective. And what it's done by proxy is it's led to us being lacking in confidence in the Scripture. And what we want to see is we want to dispel those things that lead us away from our own confidence in the Scripture. So we want to say very clearly, we want you to be confident in what God has revealed in His Word to deal with these types of problems that the DSM tries to acknowledge, but that the Bible has already spoken to. You're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of ACBC. Now, we understand that today was a flood of information, and we want to make this as short as possible. So I want to refer you to the show notes. We mentioned several books. We mentioned several resources. We want you to avail yourself to those resources. We've also put together what we call a critical research on modern psychiatry and psychopharmacology. And this is a sampling of all the books, and most of these folks, to my knowledge, are not believers, but they're people in the field of psychiatry and psychology. Uh, we want you to go look at that. We want you to go uh, peek into that, that world. We want you to see what, what's coming out relative to the science that's really an untold story, at least up to this point. You've had detractors really throughout its history, but we want you to see what's coming out even, even now. And so if you'll do that, if you're interested in that, we'd ask you to go to biblicalcounseling.com.